Welcome back to another episode of Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets, Stories of Failure and Resilience in Academia. I'm Alex White, here with my co-host, Dr. Crystal Nunes, and we are so excited to introduce to you our first official guest of the podcast, Dr. Linda McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. McCarthy. Thank you for having me. Dr. McCarthy is a professor here at TMU in the Faculty of Science. Some of her expertise includes watershed ecotoxicology, toxins in aquatic species, especially her beloved Daphnia, as well as Great Lakes pollution and remediation strategies. She is also the founder of Ryerson Urban Water. We wanted to begin with you describing to our listeners your area of expertise and the classes you teach here at TMU. Thank you very much. So yes, I am a Great Lakes ecotoxicologist. So I do look at watershed pollutants and both their fate and transport of the stressors, but I'm really, really interested in their impact on organisms. And so I came to this Uh, A little bit meandering, I liked uh, that word actually, and I teach uh, first year biology and also upper year ecotoxicology and limnology, which of course is the study of freshwater systems, lakes, rivers, and uh, wetlands. And I also uh, teach graduate courses in Ensimen or the Environmental Applied Science and Management graduate program here at TMU. As a quick aside, I must say that Dr. McCarthy's ecotoxicology course, BLG 401, is an amazing course. And anyone who has room in their schedule to take it should take it. You will love what you're learning. You will be challenged. You will sit in that classroom and you will have a fantastic time. I promise you. Now, did you always grow up thinking that you were going to be a Great Lakes ecotoxicologist? Did you know you were going to be a professor or did you just kind of happen upon it? No. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way that my life is that organized that I have those kinds of plans uh, young. But I do have to say, uh, in all honesty, and it, and it goes back to just thinking about the people who have made such an impact in my life and the kind of characteristics I look for in the people around me. Mm. And I am reminded that in grade four, grade five, I can't remember when it was, we had this incredible teacher who took us down to a fledgling Canada Center for Inland Waters. And this center on the Great Lakes had brought together a global body of experts to clean up water pollution. So she took these, I think we were 10 years old, down to this center. And what I remember is um, all of these experts coming out to talk to these little 10-year-olds. And these experts were so passionate about what they were trying to do in a world that was actually very, very polluted and going quite awry. Mm -hmm. And I think, Alex, from that moment on, I said, I'm going to be a Great Lakes biologist. And when I grow up, I'm going to work at the Canada Centre for Inland Waters. Now, did I really think at the time it was ever going to happen? No. But what was important was I had that aspirational goal. 
Now, I do need to say that so many of my students have said, yes, but I didn't grow up with that goal. So how do I develop that passion now? Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, it's so easy. Take a look at the world around you. So much can do with your passion for social and environmental justice. And most importantly, find those people who by their actions, not their words, but by their actions are choosing to put their passion behind those kind of fights. So no, you don't have to have the passion I had when I was 10 years old, but develop a passion that will carry you through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty incredible. Your experiences <laughs> that you can have in elementary school yeah. can stick with you and the influence of those teachers and a field trip that they plan for their students. Amazing. And can I just pop back of in course. there yeah this is a shout out today yeah. oh to yes all those teachers yep. Oh, yep. who are very very committed under what are incredibly trying circumstances many of them have to buy pencils yes yeah for their grade four grade five students and yet they persist in wanting to p- push their passion forward mm-hmm. into these youngsters so absolutely those teachers who have that calling i can't tell you enough how inspirational they are yeah oh i agree completely i come from a family of several teachers and i see the work that they put in the personal sacrifices of their time and also financially like you said buying those supplies and organizing these extracurriculars it's pretty incredible can I also pop something else of in? Of course. Yeah. Um, many of these schools are in um, um, areas that there is not the financial resources right. mm-hmm. to go on the field trips, yep. for example, that I went on. Right. And what I find with these teachers is that they will find the single lone tree mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. asphalt jungle right. where their school is located. And they will make their students love that tree by brass rubbings. They'll take a look at the seasons of that tree's leaves. Um, It's unbelievable what you can do with students as far as showing them a love for the environment without it having to be massively expensive field trips that so many school boards just don't have yeah absolutely i i just remember like as a kid you talk about this in ecotoxicology a lot but you talk about um getting them while they're young and i remember as a kid recycling reducing reusing and recycling became the big thing and though we didn't go to like a recycling plant or anything we had like dumb little songs literally to this day i'll just be like (laughs) sitting in my room and i'll be like reduce it and reuse it and recycle it i'm always thinking about that because that's the kind of stuff that just sticks with you and it is so important that even if you don't necessarily have the means you are educating and teaching children to care you know absolutely I also still remember from kindergarten when our teachers walked us over to our office in our school where there was a bench that had been made out of old Tetra packs and juice boxes. That's so cool. And I still remember that to this day, decades later. That's amazing. Absolutely. Teach the children well and they will teach their parents well. Oh, yes. This is what I have learned. Excellent point. 
Uh, so you've already mentioned a few times that you've had a more meandering journey to your current career. But could you briefly walk us through the academic journey of the, the degrees that you completed? Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, right out of high school, um, off to Queen's University. I know my parents were very much hoping I would go to med school mm. and get rid of this silly notion of <laughs> trying to save the Great Lakes. But it really <laughs> did not matter because the professors that I met there that stay with me the most were those who were passionate about what they were teaching. And it wasn't right. always the environment. So if I may just meander one more second. Of course. In my first year calculus course, we ended up nominating the calculus professor for teacher of the year. Can you imagine? I'd rather watch paint dry than take a calculus course until you take it by someone who's so passionate about it, mm-hmm. they make you love calculus yeah right and so this is what i remember from my years uh, at queen's university those incredibly passionate professors i then uh was actually lucky enough to get um summer jobs at the canada center for inland waters and actually a student just came up to me a couple weeks ago to say they had actually just had a summer job at the canada center for inland waters incredible um, there's two federal departments there environment canada and climate change and department of fisheries and oceans Mm -hmm. and so i went back there as a summer student and I ended up working on the research vessels. So when I graduated from Queens, I said that I'm already where I need to be, I, and I became a technician. Now here's what's very interesting, and I can't emphasize it enough. It was actually uh, administrative leads who said to me, I recommend you go back and get further education so that your voice can actually be at the adult table and have some kind of influence. And it was at that point that actually one of the directors uh, took my hand and took me to U of T uh, to start actually a PhD to actually skip over a master's of science. Before I had even started there, uh, a very maverick university, University of Waterloo, actually contacted this director at CCIW, who was my supervisor. His name was Rich Thomas. And they said, we would were wondering if Linda could do her PhD here. And that was also when I realized I could have done it at the University of Toronto with all of the technology and financial resources they had. Mm-hmm. Or I could go to this incredible maverick upstart of a university (laughs) this university of waterloo whose only claim to fame was a passionate interest in computers mathematics Mm -hmm. engineering and cooperative education to give the students a start in life Mm. and i got my phd there incredible that's great i also had a passionate calculus instructor in first year of undergrad to the point where I remember students in the other section would come to our class, fill the staircases because there weren't enough seats and it became a bit of a fire hazard and he had to remind students to attend only their section. But it was the greatest experience I'd ever had in a calculus course, which I too would not have thought I'd be saying those words. I'm very jealous. (laughs) 
the props are great the props are good I'm just I'm I, at no point when I was sitting in a calculus class was I like this is great I'm <laughs> having fair. a great time <laughs> and again thank you for that Alex because it's a reminder to teachers and professors mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what you're teaching mm-hmm. make right. it your own make it passionate and then teach it well you have no idea the fertile ground that your knowledge is falling on absolutely i realized that we didn't actually talk about how you ended up at tmu (laughs) absolutely so i ended up uh, doing my postdoc back at cciw Mm -hmm. And of course, I was then going to just continue to be a research scientist there. And a um, colleague had said, there's this Ryerson Polytechnic University. Right. <laughs> it's just become a university and it needs maverick scientists such as yourself. I mean, it's real fledgling. There's no grad school program. Right. There are no labs to do research. There's certainly no labs such as the fish labs that you're leaving behind at CCIW, but they could really do uh, with people of your spirit and passion and who loves a maverick spirit. Mm-hmm. So I came, I interviewed at Ryerson Polytechnic University. I don't even think the slide projector worked for which I was to give my research presentation and in all seriousness cliche the rest is history (laughs) I've just gotten my 25 year little glass award congratulations uh, there we go can you tell us about a time when you failed in your research Um, There are so many times I could talk about. And one of the reasons is that if you're going to go to a fledgling institution or a startup company or you start your own business, you, by definition, are going to have failures along the way unless you got incredibly lucky. But I actually don't think it's lucky if you're successful right from the go because it's actually been the failures. Again, I know this is cliche (laughs) that have literally defined me. Mm -hmm. So I came to Ryerson knowing it had none of the technical research capabilities of the Canada Centre for Inland Waters. And so everything had to be done via MacGyvering (laughs) and, and making it all up. And they had no grad program. And of course, it's I've made it into a case study in Ecotox because I think it's so important. The only researchers around me were fourth year thesis students. And they threw in their lot with me. And we got some fish from a local pet shop. And we set up fish experiments. Wow. And it was in an area of compounds of incredible importance now, but still at the time, endocrine disruptors. Mm -hmm. And we were looking at the masculinization of female mosquito fish. We set up the experiment. It was rigorous. It was repeatable. And relationships are the second piece that have always defined 
any successes I've had. So relationships with these students who trusted um, to be on board this journey with me, but the relationships that I had developed at CCIW, one of them being with pulp and paper mill companies. And because they had learned to trust myself and my supervisor, Kelly Kittrick, they actually sent us pulp and paper effluent to be tested. The kind of courage that the pulp and paper mills actually exhibited in giving this fledgling researcher effluent that ostensibly could get them shut down Mm -hmm. if it was shown to have endocrine disruptors in it was amazing. So we did the experiments. The experiments were incredibly successful. We got masculinization of the female mosquito fish, but just before we went to publish it, because all my work must be replicated before it can be sent for publication, uh, the province shut down my lab <laughs> because I had fish and I was not adhering to the guidelines at the time. Wow. Now, such a failure because I had just been awarded an NSERC discovery, one of the first at Ryerson Polytechnic University that was to go further mm-hmm. with these fish experiments. And my lab was shut down. So you ask me, at what point do you throw up your hands and give up? And I'm going to tell you, it took so much to get this the lab set up, to, to pull together all the relationships. And I thought, I don't want to stay here. I want to go back to my Canada Center for mm-hmm. Inland Waters, where those barriers simply don't exist. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting it was upper administration so again collaborations with people in control and my students who said please do not leave let's go forward and so Mm -hmm. this whole I was at the beginning really of my career and it would have made so much more fiscal sense Mm -hmm. to have left to have gotten paper publications to have become a top scientist say at the university of toronto Mm -hmm. and no i chose not to so what do you do with those kinds of failures you look at all the people who truly care that you've put around you and you listen and you go okay let's go let's never give up Mm -hmm. and that's what happened Incredible. What what was so troubling about that failure? This is this is I guess I have no problems at all with experts saying that should not have been done. Mm-hmm. But the Ontario Premier's office and the experts at the time said you are not following the guidelines of air-breathing mammals. Oh, boy. Hi, Alex here with a quick PSA. Fish are, in fact, not air-breathing mammals, in case our reactions didn't make that obvious. Cheers. And I watched... Well, no, no, no. What was so terrible was that not only was I stunned by the illogic of these edict on high and you will do what I say because we're so powerful, which of course they were. But watching my fourth year students have to listen to authority 
who had no legitimate reason for what they were saying, mm-hmm. but just that authoritative, you authoritarian, you will do this because I'm telling you to, was such a dreadful lesson to my students. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we really talked and talked. And if I had given up and gone back to CCIW, this is one thing one of my students said. They said, then that failure will stay with us that authoritarian um, power, there's no point fighting against it. We should just give up mm-hmm. and, and just allow authorities to have that kind of say. And that leads to further injustice. Yeah. So I went, okay, I'm staying. <laughs> So with your research being put on pause suddenly, how did you respond to that failure? How did you bounce back and continue on with your research program? So what I did was, and I've spent my whole time doing this, I talked to my students and I said, this is such a failure, really of huge proportions. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's a failure to you because I actually wanted them to have a co-authored paper. Right. Which you can imagine for a fourth year thesis student was huge. And so I said, I'm not sure what to do with this failure. And Mm -hmm. I was so aware that I was supposed to be the leader here. But that's how they started to trust me. So one of them said to me, Wilson Choi, I still remember this. Well, you know Daphnia. You know Hialella. You know Green Algae from your time at CCIW. They're not air-breathing mammals. They're not even vertebrates. They don't have a backbone. So this effluent that you were using on fish, the pulp and paper mill effluent and the Ashbridge's Bay wastewater uh, sewage effluent, why don't we test it on these organisms that are keystone species within the aquatic environment? And it was it was so amazing for me to look at these students and go, but of course, and upper administration said, we will absolutely support you in going forward with this. So it was really um, such a pivotal experience in my life. When the failures come, if uh, bosses around you, supervisors around you, and your students can come together. They end up lifting you up Mm -hmm. as you then lift them up. And really was such a pivotal time. Absolutely, that's incredible problem solving, the redirection to continue addressing your research question, but in one where you've now avoided that barrier that was there, Mm -hmm. amazing. And may I also just say, so to students who face failures or don't know their journeys in life, and it just seems like an impossible task to track this journey, can I please just say that the very first step is to look at the people around you and those who are kind and caring and competent Grab them into your team as your posse and journey forward with them. Because from there, they will tell you about groups 
they're involved with, for example, that you can then go further afield. And I'm reminded at the time that some colleagues said, we know scientists at the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, Mm -hmm. and it was really my first time getting involved with Ontario's conservation authorities. And so in developing relationships with them, and then they had relationships back to the University of Waterloo and back to CCIW, This network, this webbing really starts to come together. So just start by getting out of bed, moving your legs forward so you get oxygen to the brain and go, (laughs) is there even one person around me that I trust, who's compassionate, who's competent, who's courageous, that I can start to journey with and then start to learn their resources the people they know and start tapping into that yeah exactly because I think I think especially when you're doing an undergrad especially in your first two years when you're in these classrooms full of like 500 you're teaching a first year bio Mm -hmm. course right now how many kids are in your class um around 700 700 kids and you're just like oh my gosh people don't like, no one's going to notice me. No one's going to, like, I'm never going to get, like, a master's or I'm never going to be able to do any of these things. How am I even going to get to talk to my professors? Like, how am I even going to pass my classes? Um, it's so isolating. It's And, and it's, it's hard to even, yeah, like you said, begin to start to think about, okay, what can I do? Where can I, where can I look? Who can I talk to? But it is so important like collaboration I think you emphasize this a lot um, already but collaboration is so important and plays a very important role in your research as well as just the undergrad experience as a whole I think it in fact is key for any long-term sustainable success Mm -hmm. and you'll remember when Darwin talked about survival of the fittest He wasn't talking about the humans who were fast or strong. They would Mm -hmm. never be faster than the saber-toothed tiger running after them. When Darwin talked about survival of the fittest, he talked about those who were able to collaborate survived the best. So when Homo sapiens sapien got together with each other and started domesticating the gray wolf, they were together able to bring down, say, a woolly mammoth Mm -hmm. that on your own, you would never have been able to have that kind of survival success. So for me, collaboration is everything. And if you ever see anything connected with me, the word collective will Mm -hmm. probably always be there. Some kind of social democracy where nobody wins unless everybody wins has got to be more than just a cliche. The walk's got to be walked. If I may just go back also to first (laughs) years then, and one of the reasons that I taught first year biology for so long Dr. Nunes, thank you so much for taking it on, but it wasn't that long My ago. My pleasure. <laughs> Is that when you as the professor stand up there during that first September lecture, if you can possibly communicate to these 700 students that you are a resource worth 
connecting with, that your compassion and your competence and your courage, by the way, is is just so within your own, you know, epigenetic framework. Mm-hmm. They actually will start to come to you. And and I don't know if this is um, still done, but I used to walk through all the labs. So, and that was also, now I totally understand that there's not always that time for professors to do that, but it is still, um, that's a huge resource for these students. It's so easy just to look around and feel so lonely and then just give up. And you can't, you can't, Mm -hmm. because the way forward is so much better than just staying in bed, horrified at life out there. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's also one of the objectives of our podcast is to try to humanize professors and show that we, like anyone else, make mistakes, have our struggles. And hopefully in that way, if, say, a student hears one of their professors on our podcast, might feel more comfortable in reaching out to them and starting those conversations. Because I'm sure you've also noted generally resources such as office hours are highly underutilized. Um, There's also concerns with who reaches out for help. There's inequities in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Female students or first generation students are less likely to reach out to their professors. So again, hopefully by taking that time to make connections with our students, sharing our stories, showing that we too are people, that they will be more comfortable in approaching us when they are feeling lost or overwhelmed. Sorry, I just want to come back to the term failures. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As opposed to flaws. Mm-hmm. Okay. And one of the things that I teach in, in every course I've ever taught is that you have to run away from bosses or supervisors yep. who think that they know it all or think that they should know it all. So the greatest ecotoxicologists that I learned from were those who had a myriad of expertise around them. They were very, very clear that of course they didn't have all the expertise or all the answers. That was just arrogance at its worst form. (laughs) And so had a huge amount of expertise around the table. And so, so the strengths of those around you, please grab them. Stay away from bosses, friends, supervisors who think they know it all because they will also put you down to make sure that their inherent insecurities are never noticed. And when you walk away feeling worse about yourself, you don't want to be with those people. Mm -hmm. You want to be with that person who has made you feel uplifted, that your strengths matter, and that together as a collective, solutions can come about no matter what that is. And so um, I just want to pop that in there. But the failures will come along the way because of circumstances beyond your control. And often it's by authoritarian powers who choose to put those barriers in place. And so it's finding ways around that, which is so important. I actually, we we haven't touched on this yet, but that definition of failure, you, you taught it in ecology, you, she did a poll and she's like, what does failure make you feel? And like, what what is your definition of failure? And I 
I know for me personally, I was like when I don't do well in something, but like my interpretation of what is a failure isn't necessarily a failure for someone else. Like me getting a 60 on an exam might be really good for someone else. And you really need to kind of check where you're where you're at, you know, Yeah, absolutely. We've surveyed students on that exact question and the definition of failure will differ amongst everybody. And one of the definitions of failure in learning, which I've asked my students, what is failure in learning to you? Many of the responses circle back to grades. They tie it to the grade that they receive. And many students also provide a definition that for me, I would not consider a failure, but they feel it is. So for example, anything below an A is a failure for me. And that is a a common sentiment and students set very high expectations for themselves. I also wanted to circle back to your point of surrounding yourself with individuals that can support you, but are also not plagued with an arrogance of knowing everything. Mm -hmm. One of the goals of this podcast is to share our stories of failure along the way. So I'll sprinkle another one for you all. Uh, This is a story that I share with my students. So firstly, the idea of being comfortable with saying, I don't know, is something I learned through graduate school. And now I'm incredibly comfortable with. I say to my students all the time, great question. I have no idea. Let's Google it and learn together Mm -hmm. all the time. But I remember being in graduate school as a master's student and giving one of my first conference presentations. Of course, incredibly nervous. And I gave my talk where there was some preliminary data and then a lot of the remaining portions of the presentation was proposing the next step in my upcoming experiment. Finished my presentation, a member of the audience put up their hand and I thought they were there to ask a question, but they were not. They instead started to berate me in telling me that my experiment would not work not giving me the opportunity to respond. This was years ago, and I can still remember when I would try to respond, this individual would go, eh, nah, 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 nah. Oh. I can <laughs> still remember that sound. And it went on for quite some time. And I remember he took up the entirety of the questioning period. This was a senior male researcher. I was a very young female researcher. And I went back to my seat in tears, mortified. During the break of that conference, I had the moderator come up to me and apologize for not cutting it off sooner. They were just in shock. And I had some other individuals I had never met say, don't worry about it. He does that to everyone. Or I would take it as a compliment. At least he was listening to your presentation. What I learned from that experience is that now that I am in a position of privilege, I recognize that if I see such behavior at a conference, I will be the one to intervene. I don't think it is ever okay to say that is just the way they are and to then excuse or justify that behavior. Mm -hmm. We need to cut out that toxic behavior in academia. And I will end off by saying, He was wrong. The experiment worked and it's published. (laughs) So that's the lesson of that failure story. 
because at the time it felt like a failure to me. Not only that, and this is what is so, so sad about all these toxic behaviors, it actually doesn't matter how much you try to push ahead. It is the one huge barb that still sticks right. mm-hmm. in your brain. And it takes up so much negative space. And we have to call out, as you said, that bad behavior. Yes. Toxic behavior is why we are worldwide where we are mm-hmm. and it's not a good place and it's because we particularly when we have privilege of position exactly we choose not to call it out and sadly often there's enough psychophants around that toxicity that that toxicity gets to go ahead So that is absolutely huge. Now, I will have to say from experience that in calling out such toxicity has often been a barrier to me getting ahead. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's literally no question because, of course, I am labeled a troublemaker Mm -hmm. and, of course, not worthy to be at current adult tables I'm talking about in the current climate right um current adult tables and that is something that probably has gotten even worse in 2023 than it was when I was going through when in fact females who were passionate in the 80s were actually seen of being very worthy of supporting Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure whether I was looking at the past wrongly or not as far as gender justice and equality for all but when the Nobel Prize winner in physics University of Waterloo professor Donna Strickland spoke she said the barriers to females are even worse now because we know that we should be doing better and so in not then pushing past those injustices we've actually failed even worse. Mm-hmm. It's one thing in the past to say we didn't even know that women could be in STEM and should be supported. But now that we do know, and it's still not happening. So, you know, and but that's just to everybody, uh, no matter your gender, your race, your culture, your, you know, orientation, there's always going to be something pushing back at you and you've just got to find you know your moral compass if it points to north and you can look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say did I throw anybody under the bus to get ahead Mm. and if the person looking back at you says no you done good then that's the human you need to impress and and I don't know what else to say except that Words to live by, I would say. For real. <laughs> I definitely, yeah, definitely feel that. Especially, you get it in the undergrad situation where it's like, well, I'm not giving you my notes because I don't want you to do well in this course. Not even, like, I don't want to give you my notes because I don't want to help you. Because if I help you, then what if, like, 10 years down the road, like... I lose a job to you because you got a better market. And I'm like, you know that marks aren't even what jobs are looking at. Like, do you know this? Do they, Do you know? Do you know? No, they don't. But it, it becomes very cutthroat. And we have student note takers 
or we should have student note takers. But from an accessibility standpoint, I have never actually had a student note taker for any of my courses. No one wants, I know people take notes. I'm sitting next to them, <laughs> um, but nobody submits them. And so, yeah, there's a huge gap in, um, in that too, especially for students who are working with accommodations. Um, so that is I, something that I think needs to be addressed in a larger scale within science, but also within academia. It's not, not helping people isn't what gets you ahead. So if I can also say to today's students, find the professor or the administrative lead who is known to kick over the hornet's nests for justice to go forward and ask if you can join their wagon train. Because so often these excellent professors labor in incredible loneliness as they try for justice. But if even just a few students come forward and let their voices be heard, (laughs) what happens then, this synergistic um, train going forward It's absolutely amazing. So students who have such incredible passion, my Gen Zs and my millennials are my favorite people in the whole world because they are very idealistic if they can meet elders who care about their world as well. Mm -hmm. So when those two groups come together, the wise elders who have proven to fight the injustices with these wonderful gens and millennial spirit, nothing can stop this progression in society and the environment. Nothing. Well, Dr. McCarthy, we would like to thank you so much for spending your time with us today. And we would also like to invite you to take a few moments to shout out anything you would like to share with our audience, current projects, research opportunities, anything you think an undergraduate focused audience might be interested in hearing. So what are you up to these days? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, Yes, again, it's Uh, Great Lakes research. Um, Of course, climate change is just so huge and and all expertises with climate change are needed, whether you're in the natural sciences or psychology or the social sciences. Human behavior is what we need to change. Um, Please um, hook up with a journalism professor. Find out what journalists are actually addressing climate change issues. You know, it's going to be journalists who actually educate the voting public on ways going forward. So for all of you undergrad students, what if you want to get in touch with me? Um, I would love then to have you touch base with so many others out there who are diligently working on uh, a better world, if you will. Such a fantastic point that climate change is an interdisciplinary problem Mm -hmm. and a huge 
key aspect of this will be science communication, which Alex, I know is something that you're passionate about as well in communicating the urgency of climate change to those outside of the natural sciences and to just the general public. May I also just say that in addressing climate change, it's going to be ha- have to be at the local and grassroots level. Right. Yeah. And so students, please visit urban farms on the rooftop of George <laughs> Vary. Please find out where the community gardens are alongside some of our uh, grade schools that are in marginal areas. Please get involved at a local level plant a tree cliche it sounds but it is so doable join a conservation authority and i cannot recommend enough trca go down to tommy thompson park which is rehabilitating uh the portlands you can make a difference come and see me first if you (laughs) need to actually start on that journey Perfect. And as an ecologist by training myself, I also worked and volunteered with the TRCA with Credit Valley Conservation. So for any listeners, I'm happy to support there as well. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again. Thank you again. We cannot. I'm gushing. I'm so happy that you came. I'm so happy that we had you on here. Um, It's very exciting to have our very first guest too um and we thank you for your time and look forward to seeing you on monday (laughs) (laughs) insert music here (laughs) (laughs) thank you And that is a wrap on our second episode of Mistakes, Missteps, and Mindsets. Next week, we have Julia Pia, the CEO of MEMP Projects, on to talk about the trials of synthesizing a molecule that's never been made and the challenges associated with running her own business. Additionally, we would like to extend our thanks to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for helping to make this podcast a reality, as well as our host, Toronto Metropolitan University. Finally, we would like to thank Kyle Andrews for putting together our theme music and teaching me how to speak into a microphone. But most importantly, we want to thank you for listening, and I can't wait for you to come fail with us next week. See you then. Bye.